You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa, from the series, Doctrine That Goes the Distance. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Let's take some time and dive into more of the meat of the doctrine of the resurrection, can we? We've seen the point of it, what actually happens to us because of it. God has saved us, those who have repented and by faith trusted in the gospel message. That's exciting news. Let's kind of go backward now and say, okay, so what's involved in that whole power that enables God to save us? What's really going on with the resurrection? For as you can see in those verses read from Ephesians, and as you can tell by communion, we obviously believe in a resurrection. We believe that Christ has been raised. We believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. In fact, if we didn't, we would be several things. I hope this is astoundingly um, evident to you. But Paul said that if we didn't believe in the resurrection, our preaching is in vain and our faith is futile or in vain. That's one thing that we would be. If Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sins. That's another thing we would be. But I think what's most astounding in this chapter is that if Christ had not been raised, then we are above all people to be most pitied. Now see, that's contrary to how you think about it. Here's what the culture says about what you hold to as Christianity, the doctrines you embrace. They say, you know what, even if it's not true, Cliff, don't worry about it. It's still a good idea to live as a Christian because you're being good to people. It's a good way to live. There's benefits. You know what, even if it's not true, it's a good idea. Actually, that's completely false. If it's not true, you're wasting your time. Paul says, if it's not true... You shouldn't be commended. You should be pitied. So the next news show you watch or the next talk show you hear and they're trying to commend Christians even though they don't believe, just laugh. Because if it's not true, we should all leave here right now and go party till our eyeballs drop out. There is no consequence to sin. Who cares what we do, right? The fact that we're in here pretending is pitiful if it's not true. But I have good news for you. Our preaching's not in vain. Your faith is not futile. You are not still in your sins. And you are not to be pitied. Amen? Amen? Because Christ has been raised. Let's talk about that this morning. To do so, I'd like to invite you to uh, turn with me to James 4 for a few moments. Let's kick the nest of this chapter, can we? James 4, I want to just select a few verses, excuse me, not James, 1 Thessalonians 4. I don't know where I got James from. 1 Thessalonians 4. I want to kind of um, probe into these verses, and I want to show you a premise that Paul makes, and then two conclusions he draws, and from that I want to kind of expound on the resurrection a bit, both how it affects us physically and how it affects us spiritually. We're going to learn some terms. We're going to understand some concepts. I'll take you down to 10, 12, 15 feet. You'll have plenty of air in the tank. Don't worry, okay? Here's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the resurrection. Again, I'm going to define the word. I'll define the, the doctrine of it. I want you to kind of learn with me this morning about what does this idea of resurrection mean? Paul makes a premise beginning in verse 14. He says, For this we declare to you 
excuse me, verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's his premise, there's his belief, there's his doctrine. Since he believes that, since that's non-negotiable truth, what flows out of that? Two conclusions. I'll just read through these verses. You can see them in 16b and 17a. He says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Or that's just another way to say they have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep or have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Here's the first conclusion. Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Watch this, verse 16b. The dead in Christ will rise first. Conclusion number one. Here's conclusion number two then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So because Christ died and rose again, there are two guarantees we have. Those who have already died will be resurrected, key word there, and those who are alive will be raised or caught up. Now, of course, those who are dead, they would have to be in Christ to be resurrected to be with Christ. Those who are alive would have had to trust Christ to be caught up. So he's speaking here to God's people, but in God's family, those who have died in Christ, because Christ died and rose again, they will be resurrected. That body from the ground will reunite with the soul from heaven. At that moment, they will get a glorified body. I'll explain more about this in a minute. They'll go first, and this happens in in nanoseconds, all right? So if you're trying to divide it time-wise, good luck. But following that, those who are still alive when the Lord comes back, they'll be caught up and their body will go up and they'll be glorified as well. And so there's this reunion in the air of those whose dead bodies and souls reunite and then those who are living and their bodies are changed and the Lord is there. And then the Bible says that they'll be with the Lord forever and that that fact should comfort us. So let's take heart at the resurrection the premise that Paul makes, the principle, the truth, he's, he says, first of all, that Christ died and rose again, means that those who have died will be resurrected. Those who are living when he comes will be raised and will all be with the Lord together. In other words, this is not the end. When you buried your father, when you said goodbye to your children in death, when you buried an aunt, when you're at the graveside of a relative, a wife, a spouse, a husband, when, when life strikes in tragic ways like that from a human perspective... Here's the good news that comforts us as God's people. That is not the end. You will, in a physical, bodily way, be reunited with those who have died before you. Now, if that's you one day, and you're the one resurrected, those who are alive when Christ comes, they'll, if they're in Christ, they'll meet with you, with the Lord, and then you'll be with the Lord forever. That's comforting words. All of that is hinged to and based on verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and what? Say with me, church. Rose again. There's the resurrection. So last week, the died part, the atonement. This week, the resurrection. So so what is going on then? If he so assuredly can say to us, here's what I can guarantee because of Christ's death and resurrection, I can guarantee your resurrection. What's going on with those words? Let's talk about that for a bit. Let's kind of check into class. Let's learn some things in a more technical, theologically accurate fashion. When we say resurrection, 
based on this passage and others as well, I'll show you in a little bit, we're talking about bodily eternal life after bodily death. It's important that you understand these words. We're not just talking about life after death. But that's kind of what we say in the, in the current vernacular, isn't it? We use that term, and it's not wrong, I don't think, but it's not most accurate. For instance, a lot of you would probably think that Lazarus was resurrected, but actually he wasn't. Did you know that? Lazarus was resuscitated. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but Lazarus was not resurrected. Why? Because in theological terms, and to be most accurate, being resurrected means you get a body that will never die again. It's eternal Physical, bodily life in a body that's changed and glorified, never to die again. Lazarus actually had to die again. Tough break for that guy, right? Of course, again, he had to experience resuscitation, being raised back from the dead. The same is true for the, for the young man, Eutychus, that, that fell asleep, fell out of the window, died. Paul went and raised him back from the dead. Power of God working there. He was raised from the dead, but he wasn't resurrected because Eutychus too had to kind of live in a body decaying and had to die again. In the most theologically, technically accurate terms, resurrection means that we now have a body that will never die. That's why Christ is called the first fruits. In fact, I would say to you, Jesus Christ is the first to be resurrected. Have others been resuscitated, brought back to life? Have those been great miracles? Yes, but Jesus Christ was the first to be resurrected. In other words, to be given a different kind of body in its composition that could be touched and yet pass through walls. That could somehow travel through time and space in ways that we're not quite sure how it happened and it seemed quickly. He could disappear. He could, um, it just was an odd type of body in that way. And yet it was physical. They touched it, the hands and the side. He ate on the seashore, and yet he wasn't in need of food because his body was glorified. We know that his scars still existed from his side and his hands, but the scars from all the torturing, the crown of thorns, the hair being pulled out, the ribs and the slaps and the beatings, the cat of nine tails, from what we gather, those were all miraculously gone. Some have wondered, why would two or three scars remain, but yet Christ's body didn't show up as some ravaged, scarred, misfigured, ooh, what happened to you? Go back to the grave, please. You know, that didn't happen. He was glorified. So we're not sure all that's happening there, but just just we know this. Christ didn't stumble out of the grave half alive. He didn't come out on the ventilator and a breathing machine, saying, well, I got 40 days left. Let's see if we can make this work. He was dead. He was now alive. 500 folks witnessed him and saw the power of the resurrection. It was a different kind of body that was eternal. Christ is in heaven today, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father in bodily form. So when that happens, we then can truly say about someone, oh, they've been resurrected. Does that make sense? That's the most theologically accurate, technical technical way to talk about the resurrection. All of that, of course, is hinged to Christ's resurrection. You've got to understand this. Our resurrection, both physically and spiritually, is all tied to Christ. We don't have the power to raise ourselves up from the dead spiritually. Isaiah 64, 7, no man rouses himself to take hold of God. I read that verse maybe a week and a half ago, and I just been, it just stuck right in my brain. Like, no, no one says, yeah, I'll go find God today. Nobody does that. But God spiritually comes in and, and regenerates us. And when he comes back again, he will actually regenerate, restore, redeem 
our actual body, if it's in the ground, if it's alive, it'll be caught if he'll change it then, and we'll get a new physical body. So God actually does all of the regeneration, the, the, the renewing, the, the breathing of life into our bodies physically and spiritually from the beginning. It's all God. And all that's empowered by the resurrection. So, so remember, it's tied to Christ's gospel, his death and burial. It has a spiritual aspect and a physical aspect. So this is what the word resurrection means. Just kind of grapple with it, understand it, and maybe use your terms in the future, maybe a little more specifically and correctly, that when you talk about Lazarus or, or Eutychus or the, or the little girl that Peter raised from the dead, just say, yeah, that, they were raised back to life, but they weren't resurrected because they still had a physical body that would again continue to decay. Christ was the first resurrected one. He's the first fruits, and we follow in his train. So that leads us to say this. What is the doctrine then of the resurrection? Here's something a little more wordy. Maybe snap a picture of this. You might want to hold on to this. Here's what we believe then based on 1 Thessalonians 4 as well as other scriptures. And I'll show you those. Don't worry. Here's what we'd say is the doctrine of resurrection. It is that Christ's literal and bodily resurrection ensures believers that God is satisfied. That's where the primary emphasis is. God raised Jesus because his His sacrifice was satisfactory. It was eternal. It covered sin, period. Christ's final words were what? It is finished. Amen. And so when God raised Jesus from the dead, he was saying, I'm satisfied. He was vindicating the Lord, of course. So God was satisfied. Christ was vindicated. We're justified, Romans 4.25. He was raised because of our justification. And then one day we'll be glorified. And what it means to be glorified is simply this, that your body will be resurrected and reunited with your soul eternally and incorruptibly. Okay? So we see what the word resurrection means. We see how it kind of helps us unfold more about the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, knowing that, I want to make sure you know what it's not. Okay? Because I think some of you probably thought, well, I guess I didn't realize that resurrection was actually more specifically the moment when our bodies are changed. I kind of thought maybe Lazarus was resurrected. I thought maybe Eutychus was. No, they were raised back to life, but they weren't resurrected. That occurs when our bodies are changed and we're eternal from that point forward in a physical form. Here's what resurrection is not. It is not resuscitation, even though that's a good thing if you're on the other end of that equation, right? <laughs> It's not revivification or reinvigoration. Those are all synonyms to talk about the miracles that occurred when, when someone was raised back to life. We are thankful for that. We think that's good. Nothing wrong with that. But it's not resurrection. They still maintained a physical body that was decaying and they still had to die yet again. Resurrection also, these last three, it is not reincarnation. The belief in some false religions that that you do the best you can here, and then when you die, you may get resurrected, or they would say the word reincarnated. You come back as something else, and you better do good while you're here, because if you don't, you won't come back as something, you know, come back as something worse. Um, so reincarnation is not resurrection, okay? Universalism is the sense and the belief that, that everyone's raised to one place, and that is just to heaven eventually. It may be through a different means of and timings, but eventually we all end up the same place with God. Uh, that's false. That's uh, incorrect and unbiblical. Uh, they would deny any teaching of a literal, physical hell. But it's odd to me that you can adopt a literal, physical heaven, but then cross out the other parts. 
So I would say to be consistent, let's just admit that there is a literal physical hell and there's a literal physical heaven. So universalism is false, unbiblical, as well as annihilationism. They would adopt that there's no resurrection at all. That once you die, you're dead, dust to dust, and hey, good luck, you cease to exist. But the Bible teaches differently. And as we've said for several weeks, this is a presuppositional series, so we're believing the Bible is true. The Bible talks about that we don't cease to exist. Instead, instead, let me say this to you. I believe you, if this is possible, I'm not sure how to say it in the way that makes the most sense, but the reality that's to come in the new heavens and new earth with a glorified body in which you will serve the Lord and worship Him in literal physical form that will never decay, that's more of a reality than what you're living now. I know that's, I'm not trying to say that this is like some matrix thing going on here, you know, or something like that. I'm not trying to say that. But I'm just trying to communicate to you that, and I'll say more in a minute, but this is not your best life. <laughs> Let me just hold on to that. I'll mention it later. I want to make sure you understood. These things are not resurrection. I feel pretty strongly to make sure you understand words correctly and doctrine appropriately. And in its most theologically accurate fashion, resurrection refers to the moment that our bodies are changed and then do experience eternal physical life. Until that point, we may be resuscitated, revived, rejuvenated, so forth. Yes, but we're not resurrected until that occurs. And so Christ experienced that by the power of God. When he was resurrected, he's the first fruit. And so we will experience that either after our death and Christ comes or if we're alive when we're caught up. A change in our bodies. Now when you hear that, you may say, are there other verses that talk about the bodily aspect of the resurrection? This physical aspect. Yes, there are. Let me, let me show you a few here. Just write these down, would you? Take a picture of the screen. Drop the references down. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. There's a future sense in these verses in which Paul is addressing what's going to happen in the future. He's speaking here of the physical resurrection that's hinged to and tied to based on Christ. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 4, 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. It's very similar to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's 1 Corinthians 15. Here's three verses from this chapter, which is a a pinnacle resurrection chapter, by the way. 1 Corinthians 15. Just read that on your own this week, maybe as your family. Here's three verses from that chapter that speak of the physical aspect of the resurrection that will occur in our bodies. Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. He says this happens in this order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So he's he's making a a case here. We will follow in the footsteps or the train of Christ. He was resurrected physically, literally, and we will be as too. We will be too. Here's this final verse. We have borne the image of the man of dust, and to that the church says, that's the truth, isn't it? When you're, that's you right now. You're bearing the image of the man of dust. With all of its complications and frustrations, you're bearing that image. But guess what? We shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Hallelujah. Amen. So this is not the end. And what you're enduring in that body currently is not the only one you'll have. Now, whether you want to say that the one you'll get is remade or or a new body, we can debate that and and have fun with that. Does God gather all the parts together and restore them? And will you look the same just without decay? I don't know. 
All I know is this, that the Bible declares and assures that when we meet the Lord in the air, we will be changed. And we will put on incorruptible immortality. We will never die, and yet it will be a literal, physical body. Man, hallelujah, church. So so, so when you think about this, that this is really what the resurrection empowers, that God saves us bodily, you now begin to see why Paul could say something this astounding. For me to live is Christ. Like we all, amen, Paul. We're down with that. But then Paul says, and to die is what? Gain. No one talks like that unless you believe in the resurrection. No one says, oh yeah, dying, that's a plus. No one puts death in the pro column. It's a risk. It's a liability. It's what you're trying to not to do. Paul said, oh man, living is Christ, yeah, and dying, hey, that's a bonus. Paul must have known this wasn't the end, that the resurrection was to come, that he was trading in his old body for a glorified one that would never die in which he could serve Christ tirelessly, endlessly, ceaselessly. Wow. That's what the resurrection ensures and guarantees. Now, hopefully you're thinking right now, well, Todd, it seems like this message on the resurrection is really about our physical bodies. There's a good bit of that involved in this. But you're saying, you're saying, I thought that a lot of times in Scripture there was this idea of the spiritual aspect of the resurrection, like Christ raised us up and didn't he birth life into us? Well, you're right. And so we can say assuredly about the resurrection and its doctrine that the Bible speaks of resurrection in two ways. The bodily aspect, and we just kind of covered that, which means eternal bodily life after bodily death. But it also speaks of the resurrection in spiritual terms, which means spiritual life after spiritual death. And we could even say eternal spiritual life after spiritual death, all right? Some verses to kind of show you this aspect of the doctrine of resurrection, how it kind of has some spiritual uh, implications for us now. Here's some verses, 1 Peter 1, 3. Your memory verse for this week, pick up copies of the door when you leave. Here's what it says, that blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So how does God birth you to new life? How does God cause you to be born again? Through the resurrection. So something physical that happened in Christ's life has spiritual results in yours. Let's go to Romans chapter, excuse me, Colossians 3.1. Here, Paul is uh, making some assumptions even. If you then have been raised with Christ, there's resurrection language, right? Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So he's expecting here some some changes in affection, some changes in priorities, all because we've been raised with Christ. The analogy, the the illusion is Christ was raised, and so you have as well been raised spiritually. Here's Romans 6, two verses from this chapter. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, and watch this phrase, he's taken a literal, physical illustration of Christ's life and says, That's the reason that you too should walk in newness of life. So something in the present, in the current, happens in our life. We have a new life. We we act and live differently. Why? Because Christ was raised. Here's verse 11. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Resurrection language again. So, So do you see what the Bible's doing here? Now, I want you to listen to me. Every single eye 
right up here. Every single ear listening. The Bible is unequivocally letting us know that God has got you both body and soul. Do, Do you hear this, church? That you're not trapped in a body necessarily, enduring this and for a few short years and then you're in the ground and I hope God can deal with this. God created you. He's got you. He's going to restore you, redeem that, renew you one day when he raises you from the dead. He's got you. He's got you physically. The resurrection ensures that and yet he's got your soul as well. He's got the spiritual side of you covered. God's got you covered body and soul. Isn't this delightful news? Does this make you just rejoice in your what we call soteriology? That's a big word for the doctrine of salvation. Aren't you glad that God saves us in the atonement, saves us in the resurrection, all of that combined, it is God who saves us, and he saves us completely, both physically and spiritually. This is all tied to, hinged to, based on, built around the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, let me just address a couple more things on these two points. Regarding the bodily aspect of the resurrection, I'm speaking there of Christ and of ours. Regarding this idea that resurrection most technically means it's bodily life, eternal bodily life after bodily death. Understand something. This speaks to the eternal physical reality of your body. Just make a note of that. Your body was made by God. It is not in and of itself evil. Does your flesh have cravings because of the fall of man that you wrestle with? Yes, but your body in and of itself is not evil. That's an old first century false heresy that made us think, well, we can't do anything in the physical. uh, It's material stuff's evil, and so let's just kind of escape to some spiritual realm. No. God made you, and he made your body, and he'll one day remake your body. Remember what God said at the beginning? It's good. (laughs) Amen? Amen? But this is not the only body you'll have. You will have a body one day recreated, remade, renewed by God when he comes. And with that body, now watch this, with that body, you will actually serve the Lord and worship him in a physical kingdom called the new heavens and new earth with a literal body. See, some of you think, man, when I die, I guess I'll just go float around, have some wings, maybe a bow and arrow, a harp, you know, like... uh, you have all these thoughts about heaven that just are, are ludicrous. You don't, you're not going to float around with wings. You're not an angel. You're a human. You have limitations now, but one day God's going to restore you and renew you. He's going to glorify you, and you will actually be with an eternal physical body in an eternal kingdom, actually doing things and completing projects and serving the Lord in a body, but that will never die. Imagine never getting tired when you're serving. Hallelujah. Imagine never running out of energy. Imagine never plopping on the bed saying, man, I can't, I'm, I'm not going to make it till tomorrow. I mean, all of those days are done. You will serve endlessly, ceaselessly. Wow. Your body will never wear out. As you are working and serving in a kingdom that's actually on the earth. Remember, we're praying the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on what? Earth, as it is. And one day the new heavens and new earth will be here the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven. And, you know, I don't know how it's all going to work, 
But heaven is not like just some faraway galaxy and you get a set of wings and good luck trying to worship all day for eternity. And heaven is an actual physical reality. It's called God's kingdom. And it'll come day and it'll invade earth and you'll have a literal body that will never decay and you'll be part of that. Man, that's exciting stuff. So the resurrection speaks to the, to the eternal physical reality of your body and of God's kingdom. On the spiritual side, I want you to hear this. It speaks to the eternal and spiritual security of your soul. And I, I, I'll admit this to you. I don't know that I've thought about this before about a week and a half ago. As I was contemplating and studying, I realized that this doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, actually is another strong stone in the, in the belief that we hold here and that I hold of eternal security. Now, consider this logically and theologically. If God grants eternal life spiritually, it would not be eternal life if you could somehow take that away, would it? I know folks would say, well, you know, I don't believe you, it's once saved, always saved. Well, actually, I don't believe that either. I do believe once truly saved, always truly saved. And there are those who think they're saved and they go for a few years and then they fall away and we realize they never were really saved. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Now we as humans tend to judge the situation prematurely most times. Who knows how long it takes sometimes for God's seed to sprout and for God to bring it home. I don't know the timing of that. But let's be clear on something. Once God genuinely and truly saves, he doesn't renege on his offer and say, oh, I promise you eternal life, but it's actually only temporary life. Ah, you're not saved now. That's not God. And so just as he will resurrect your body one day and give you an eternal, incorruptible body that will never die, When he resurrects your soul and gives you spiritual life, it will never die. You can't lose it. You can't kill it. You can't change it. It's given by God and it will last forever. It's called eternal life. Are you with me? So this morning, if you're here and you say, well, I've always believed you could just somehow lose your salvation. I hope the doctrine of the resurrection will change your mind and cause you to plant your feet firmly that he, watch this, Jude 24 and 25, He will keep you from stumbling and present you faultless. Paul said in the Philippians that he who started it will finish it. Does that make sense, guys? So the doctrine of the resurrection speaks to our eternal security. It also speaks to the physical reality. That's why I say to you, God's got you covered both body and soul. Now, I'd love to take some questions. I don't have time this morning. If you've texted some in, I'll address those. If you still want to text some in, go ahead. I need to give you three brief realizations as you hit the streets, okay? Because you're going to walk out these doors, and you're going to be glad you know some new things, maybe some different ways to understand it, maybe some more technical, uh, technically accurate uh, viewpoints. That's true. But you also go to work tomorrow. You're, you're going to be raising kids today. You're going to be inter- interacting with people, and you're like, Todd... Talk to me a little bit. How can I hit the streets with this doctrine? How does it make a difference? Three realizations that you need to kind of put in your back pocket. First of all, the resurrection is proof. 
right? It is proof of what? A satisfied God. He's not going to send Christ back one day and say, well, that lasted for 100 years, I need you to die again. When God raised Jesus, he was saying, my wrath against sin is forever, forever settled for all who believe in Jesus. It's also proof of a vindicated Savior. You don't raise someone from the dead if they weren't really God. You don't just raise a good man and say, well, let's give us a shot. So a satisfied God, a vindicated Savior, a justified people, amen, church? Your sins are not larger than the cross or more powerful than the grave. And Jesus Christ conquered both of those. In his cross and in his resurrection, he defeated sin in the grave. So all who believe are justified. We do not sit or stand condemned. That means then we have a living faith. So that's why this body of believers here, you're not an organization. You're an organism. We are a living temple, Peter says. We're living stones, all collected, forming a temple unto God. It's life and breath in this thing we call church. That's why it doesn't really matter if we meet here or if we meet at another building or if we meet outside because location doesn't define the church. The Spirit of God breathing life into people and unifying them by His Spirit, man, there's the church. That's why we're a living body. All of that, the proof of that is the resurrection. I would love to spend some time, and I can't today, on the proofs of the resurrection. Because I can't, let me just suggest a couple resources for you. Um, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel deals more with the proof aspect of the resurrection. Our focus today was on the doctrine of the resurrection. So we delved into more of the physical, spiritual aspects, what it actually means. There's weeks of messages just on the proof of it. But Lee Strobel does a good job uh, walking through the in the book The Case for Christ, Josh McDowell and Evidence That Demands a Verdict, another good resource. And I would encourage you to pick up the books we're selling this summer. Uh, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem is about 1,200 pages. In its section on the resurrection, there's a number of pages that deal with proofs of the resurrection, from the witnesses, over 500 of them, to the, uh, to the accounts of historians, to uh, rulers of that time who knew it happened and were trying to hide it, uh, from the Roman soldiers and guards. There's a number of ways that we can say, wow, the resurrection's proof. It is the ultimate personal affirmation and the ultimate public apologetic. And you should never be afraid to latch onto the resurrection and engage in conversation. It's the most attested to, eyewitnessed event that, that supports and undergirds our Christianity, our beliefs. Even when in the past, and I'm kind of getting into this, so I said I wouldn't, so I won't. We'll just move on. Okay, we won't. Read those resources, check out our books. Just know the resurrection is proof of at least those four things. But the resurrection is also power. All right? It's power for two things, at least. And we could probably list more, but I think these two would demand our attention. It's power for the mortification of sin and the multiplication of saints. What do I mean by that? Well, just read Romans chapter 6, in which we are told to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And within that context, the Holy Spirit instructs us through Paul that this is possible because we've been raised with Christ. 
Christ has been raised. We've been raised. So there's this power available. What power? The power that raised Christ from the dead enables you to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Men, listen to me very carefully. Women, you can listen in on this conversation. But men, all eyes right here. Man to man, I want to let you know something. The struggles that we deal with as men, the battles we face every day from lust, the temptation to pornography, covetousness, pride, selfish ambition, greed. You and I, we battle this every day. You don't stand a chance of killing those in your own power. But let me be quick to say this on the heels of that. In the power of the resurrection, please do more than tolerate your sin. Do more than manage it. Kill it. Say, Todd, really? Yeah, you've got the power of a resurrected Christ in your corner. So Paul would say, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Men, let's take seriously the resurrection and let's, let's live in the Spirit's power and let's kill sin in our life. The things that are unique to our, our, our existence, the things we struggle with, Please, don't negotiate with the devil. He's already been defeated. He's not coming to the table to make a deal with you. The resurrection's already the knockout punch. So let's go into battle. Not on our own strength, for sure, but with Christ's strength. And let's look to kill sin in our life for the sake of God, His glory, our families. Let's not tolerate, negotiate, or manage it. Let's mortify it. Amen. But resurrection power is also good for the multiplication of saints. You say, Todd, how do you get there? Real simply, when Jesus Christ told the 11 disciples on the Mount of Olives to go and make disciples of all nations, prior to that, he made this statement. He said, hello, gentlemen. By the way, all authority has been given to me. He claimed a place no one else could claim. Why? Because he had done something no one else had done. He had beaten death. He was meeting these 11 on the top of the mountain in his glorified, physical, literal body and claiming to have all authority. So when he says, by the way, I'm king now, he was telling the truth. And he says, I want you now to take this same power, this message that changes people, that births new life into them and I want you to make disciples of all nations, all language groups. So do you know what empowers us today to follow in that train, to follow in those footsteps? It's the same power they use. It's the resurrection of Christ. It's His authority empowering us to not be afraid to share the message so that people from every nation, language, and tribe will come to Jesus Christ. In fact, if you were to read the book of Acts, and please note this, if you just were to read the book of Acts at one sitting, you would find that this is exactly what they did. You'll find that they consistently said, hey, this Jesus that you saw crucified, he was raised from the dead. He's resurrected, and you should believe in him. And they took that message, Jerusalem, to Antioch, Lystra, Derby, Capernaum, and on and on, Asia Minor, until every language, nation, tribe had heard. And we follow and participate in that today. 
But don't think for a moment God cannot empower the multiplication of saints. He has and he does. Amen, church? Let's be about the business of making disciples of all nations. It's empowered by the resurrection. And lastly, the resurrection is promise. Promise of what, Todd? As I said before, that this is not your best life, that your best life is actually later. (laughs) Hallelujah. In a few weeks, we're going to my father-in-law's 90th birthday party. We'll drive to Michigan and we'll celebrate with him. He's not in the best shape in some ways, but he's doing pretty good for 90, to be honest with you. But you know what we'll celebrate is not just the fact of his life. We'll also celebrate the fact that when his life on this earth ends, his best life, his real life, will have just started. And he'll be a soul in heaven for a while until the Lord comes. And then his body will be resurrected to meet his soul in the air. And then if we're alive when Christ comes and Julie and I, we'll meet in the air with him. And then he won't have any problem remembering anything or walking anywhere or holding his arm up. And together with her dad and hopefully many of you will serve the Lord ceaselessly, tirelessly, endlessly in the new heavens and new earth. Yeah. So is it tragic when we lose people? Yeah, it's, it's sad. We're, we're humans. We grieve. But it is not the end. I think about Randy Hensel, murdered in Jamaica, or Ryan Day, who lost his life in a four-wheeling accident in southern Iowa. Bradford Miller. His body just wore out. There's others of you here. Some of you parents have lost little children. Some of you have buried folks unexpectedly. Some of you found out this week you have an illness and you're not sure if you'll recover from it. I was at the hospital this week with Tony Didlow. He had his right little toe amputated. One of our former elders here. And, um, Chuck Morris, a former pastor at, well, pastor at Grace Church. I used to work with him. He's on his last days of his life. Just cancer ravaging his body. If you look at that without the promise of the resurrection, yeah, you would lose hope, wouldn't you? You would not know how to grieve. But with the resurrection, we can grieve with hope. I think that's what was behind Christ's words to Mary and Martha. When he did raise Lazarus back to life, when he resuscitated him, we'll call it, he didn't resurrect him. I think Jesus, when he said these words to them, was saying, hey, this is good for now. You have your brother back. This is nice. But by the way, there's a day coming in which it gets even better. And he pointed right to himself. And he said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, Your best life is still yet to come. This doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy the here and now. Enjoy God's creation. Go for it. But don't think for a moment this is all there is. The resurrection ensures us that the best is yet to come. Amen, church?